we have uh, a special guest uh, here to give us a message. So please help me welcome in uh, uh, John. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Hey, that was good worship, wasn't it? That was a good word. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, listen, uh, how many of you guys were here this morning? Any of you? Okay, I have good news and bad news for you. <laughs> there was somebody that was supposed to be giving a message tonight that got COVID. And so they asked me last minute to uh, give the message that I gave this morning. So it might be good news in the sense that if there are things that you didn't track with and you hear it a second time, that maybe you'll retain it better. But bad news in the sense that you're going to hear the same message again tonight. So I won't be offended if you have to walk out. But uh, I'm really excited about this message, and it really hits home for me. Uh, my wife and I are Jewish. We're missionaries to Jewish people. Uh, we serve in L.A. We served in Jerusalem. We're going back to Jerusalem in a few months, Lord willing, uh, to bring a message of the gospel to Jewish people. And uh, one of the privileges I have uh, to share with you tonight is a message from a Jewish perspective. So because we're missionaries to Jewish people, we have to think Jewish in the sense when we read the Bible. Because if you think about it, the context of the Bible, every person who was called to write a book in the Bible, pretty much everyone, was Jewish. Uh, Jesus was a Jew. He came to the house of Israel. He called 12 apostles who were all Jewish. And so the whole context of the Bible really is from a Jewish perspective. So this is one of the privileges that I have uh, to be able to share a message in the context in which it was written. So last time I was here and I gave a message um, for the Sunday night service was in May. I gave a message on the spring feast. This is part two of that. I'm going to go in depth in the spring feast and give some concepts from them. But there is a little bit of review. So if you brought your Bibles tonight, some passages will be on the screen and some of them will be in your Bibles. So if you brought your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Jesus was about to offer himself on the cross, and he had something really important that he wanted to do with his inner three disciples. In fact, he told them afterwards to not share anything with anything or share anything about what they're about to experience until he rose from the dead. And this is what happened in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus was transfigured before his inner three disciples. Everything here, as we're about to read, is written from a Jewish perspective. So I'm going to draw on something here, just one, but let's give it a read starting in verse one. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, very important Jewish figures from the Old Testament talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. In Hebrew, this is the word sukkah or sukkot, very significant in Judaism, uh, refers, refers to the return of Messiah, but we don't have time to go over that tonight. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is where I want to focus your attention is here in verse 5. When the voice speaks from the clouds, it says, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice in the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. 
listen to him. On the surface, it's a powerful statement. Uh, God's prophetic voice was silent for 400 years prior to this. And that silence was broken here at Jesus' baptism and here at the transfiguration. And very succinct, only one sentence, but very powerful if you read it from a Jewish perspective. Um, Let me back up and give some context really quick. In Judaism or in synagogue, which when I first was called to Jewish missions, I went to synagogue for a year to experience what it was like to participate in synagogue. And one of the things that rabbis do in preparation for their message and when they give it, um, they, in order to say that all scriptures, all scripture points to that subject and it's, it's verified by the word of God, they would have to take that one concept that they're preaching on that morning from all three sections of the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible is their scripture. It's our Old Testament, every word verbatim. The only difference is, is the ordering. They have, we have five sections, the Pentateuch, the historical writings, the wisdom literature, and major minor prophets. For them, they only have three, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. So if you're a, uh, if you're a rabbi in the first century and you wanted to say that the concept you're preaching that morning is confirmed by the word, you'd have to pull it from all three of those sections. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, in verse 5, when the voice speaks from the clouds, it says, this is my beloved son, which comes from Psalm 2, where it says, I will tell to agree, you are my son, today I have begotten you. With whom I am well pleased comes from Isaiah 42, where it says, my servant in whom my soul delights or is well pleased with. And lastly, listen to him, three words in English, but only two in Greek and Hebrew, very significant words, because it comes from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, someday after this, a prophet will arise among your brothers, and when he comes, listen to him. Deuteronomy 18 is from the Torah, Psalm 2 is from the writings, and Isaiah 42 is from the prophets. All of God's scripture confirms and is validated in Jesus Christ. Everything points to him and is fulfilled in him. Amen? Amen. I think this is a good segue into the topics that we're going to speak on tonight. Three important, very important topics in Judaism is the blood, resurrection, and Holy Spirit. And I hope for each Christian in this room, uh, it's important concepts for us as well. So I'm going to show you the Jewish perspective of these things and show you how Jesus fulfills them. So let's start in Genesis 22. If you could turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, we'll begin our message for the evening. Genesis 22 in Judaism is called the Akedah. It's a Hebrew word for binding. Uh, The Jewish people don't really follow chapter divisions, but they give names to certain passages that explain the content that's contained in them. And this one has to do with the binding of Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, this is an important passage for these three concepts that you see on the screen, because these three concepts, the blood, resurrection, and Holy Spirit, show up in this chapter. So let's give it a read and see what kinds of things we can find here. In verse 1, we find out that God calls Abraham and tests him to sacrifice his son. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So we all know the story. He rose up early in the morning. He cleaved wood. He saddled his donkey. And he took his son to the land of Moriah. And somewhere, sometime along the way, his son Isaac began to question his father and asking what he's doing. And this is what he says in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And this is what Abraham says in reply. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This, what Abraham said is very significant if you read it carefully. First is that he mentions that God will provide for himself a lamb. Now, we all know the story. What happens after this is that they go to the land of Moriah. They find Mount Moriah. He takes his son up there. He lays out wood on an altar. He binds his son Isaac. He lifts up the dagger. And then what happens? The angel of the Lord stops him and says, Abraham, Abraham, what are you doing? And he he provides in place of his son a sacrifice. It was caught in a thicket by his horns. Do you remember what it was? A ram, that's right. Not a lamb. And that's significant because Abraham was looking for the lamb that God would provide. But here he provides a ram. So this isn't the lamb that Abraham was expecting. This isn't the sacrifice that he was looking for. The other key word here in verse 8 is God will provide. Now that word provide is in the name Moriah. Moriah comes from the word to provide. So Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham slaughtered her son, or figuratively speaking, did, is the place that the, later that the temple was built. So all the things in Judaism and Jewish tradition hinge upon this chapter and about the fact that God would provide a lamb for sacrifice. Very significant, and you can go down the path on that as far as you want. But what I want to mention about this word provide Re'ah in Hebrew is literally, it is the word to see, like having sight or looking at something. So what does that have to do with the sacrifice of a lamb? Well, let's look down at verse 14. It says in verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place that God will provide. So he names it after that word, by faith, believing that God would provide the sacrifice that he was looking for. Now, the place after, so chronologically, after this chapter, where those two words, to provide and lamb, appear is in Exodus chapter 12. So that must be what Abraham was looking forward to, was the lamb that God would provide. So let me give some context in Exodus 12 before you put that on the screen. Exodus 12 is about Passover, And last time I was here in May, I focused on that. But just a little bit of review. Passover is very significant because it's focused on the Lamb of God. He's supposed to be without blemish or spot. And his blood is supposed to be spilt. And it says very explicitly that you're supposed to take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of the Lamb, and paint it over your doorpost and over your lintel. So let me give a little history. The, The Israelites, as we know, were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. God sent 10 plagues, which led to the salvation of the Jewish people. And the 10th and final plague, the most significant one, uh, was the slain of, of, of the lamb, of the spotless, spotless and blameless lamb. Now, if you took that blood 
and you painted over your doorpost and over your lintel, the angel of destruction would pass over your house. If you didn't have the blood, then the angel of destruction would go in your house and slay your firstborn son. Now, this is very key and important because uh, one thing that it doesn't say is who you need to be in that house, which is very significant if you think about it. Because it doesn't focus anything on who's in the house. The only focus in Exodus 12, the whole chapter, is on the blood, namely the blood of the lamb. So it doesn't say that, um, it doesn't say that you need to be an Israelite to enter that house and receive the blood. It doesn't say or ask how many sins you've committed in your past in order to receive the blood. What matters is, very simply, is that you have the blood of the spotless and blameless lamb. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel from the Old Testament. And we know that Jesus Christ was the one who shed his blood as a spotless and blameless lamb. And the day that he picked to do it was Passover, showing that he is that Passover lamb. When he was hanging on this cross and he was about to give up his spirit, he said, or it says in Scripture, in order to fulfill all things, I thirst. And someone standing by heard him say that, took a hyssop branch, very explicitly, very explicit in Exodus 12, and dipped it in gall, which is sour wine, and Judaism is a representation of blood. And he touched it to Jesus' lips. And Jesus said, it is finished, and gave up his last breath. So the very last thing that Jesus did on his last breath was offer himself on the cross as the Passover lamb. And this is what he did for us all. Now, a Jewish person looking on Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and recognizing what he's doing, it's very clear to him what he was expressing of himself, that he was that lamb that they were looking forward to, that God would forgive their sins and set them free. So in Exodus 12, it'll show up here on your screen. It says the blood, key word, and we'll focus on that just here in a second, shall be a sign, and it's referring to the blood of the lamb, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, that word see is the word that we find in Genesis 22 that Abraham said that God would provide the blood of the lamb. That's the word that's used there. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Very significant of what the blood means to us as Christians, both Jew and Gentile alike. All right, now about the blood. I shared my testimony last time I was here. Um, Let me just share this part that I didn't share last time is I woke up in a jail cell. Um, At this point in my life in 2005, I lost everything to my name. I was an intravenous drug user, and I I had four months in jail that I was supposed to spend. And the first night I was in jail, when I was bankrupt in every way, spiritually, emotionally, financially, relationally, uh, burned my bridges so much with my friends and family that I asked my mother for a blanket, and she hung up the phone. Um... So I was at the lowest point in my, in my life. And when I was sitting in that jail cell, two men came up to me the first night and started sharing the gospel with me. Now, I was very puzzled about that because, and kind of shocked because this happened in jail. And I was asking him why he was there, one of the guys. And he said that he had some parking tickets he forgot to pay. And uh, California state law 
you have to do jail time for that. So he was just there for the day, but long enough to share the gospel with me. I share that with you because I didn't accept Christ right at that moment, but I was very curious in who he was. And I started reading um, a Bible as soon as I got in my jail cell. And I start where everyone starts to read a book in page one. So I read through Genesis and Exodus, and then I came across Leviticus. And I started to struggle, as you can imagine. But here's the irony in this. Even though it was one of the first books I read as a new believer, and it was very hard to read through, today it's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And the reason for that is what it contains and its purpose that it serves. And it has to do with the blood. So let's take a look at Exodus 40. Exodus 40 is the last chapter, the last passage of the book of Exodus. So what comes after this passage is Leviticus chapter 1, okay? So Exodus ends with a problem. The Israelites were in, were in the wilderness. They passed through the Red Sea, and God commanded them to build a tabernacle. Formerly, it was the tent of meeting. Now it's called the tabernacle, and this is what it says concerning the tabernacle and the problem that it leaves Leviticus to answer. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this is the problem that Exodus ends with. God's presence was among his people when they were in the wilderness. Cloud by day, fire by night, his glory showed over the temple. But the issue was is that they couldn't have intimacy with God. His purity and his holiness was not accessible to Moses and the priests. So this is why the book of Leviticus was written. So just to show you what Leviticus did and the fact that it actually did accomplish its purpose, in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it will show up on your screen. This picks up after the book of Leviticus, and this is how it begins. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, where? In the tent of meeting. So in Exodus 40, it ends with he can't enter the tent. Leviticus is written. Numbers 1 picks up inside the tent in verse 1. So the book of Leviticus fulfilled its purpose, certainly. So what is contained in the book of Leviticus, and how does it serve and fulfill the purpose of allowing access to God, having intimacy with the Lord? Well, it hinges upon one word, one very important key word, and it's the word blood. It shows up 89 times in the book of Leviticus, uh, very significant, showing the necessity of blood in sacrifice and to have communion with God. It shows at the very center of the book, the kind of the thesis statement of the whole book in Leviticus 17:11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you or for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So what the blood does for us is it provides atonement. And this atonement allows us to draw near to God, which is what the English word for atonement means. It's three words squish into one, at one mint, where we become at one with God. But in Hebrew, it's a little bit more significant than that. It's the word kippur in biblical Hebrew. You might have heard that word because it's a part of a name of a, ho- of a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's used in two different ways in the Hebrew Bible. One is for atonement, and another 
is for pitch. It's a tarry substance that you would cover wooden structure to protect it from the elements. Why is that important? How does that relate to atonement? Well, something very significant. In Genesis chapter 6, God commands Noah to build an ark and cover it with, guess what? Pitch. Cover it with pitch or atonement. And it's that atonement, that pitch that protected Noah and his family from the waters of destruction. Jesus says that in the last days, it will be like the days of Noah, where people are marrying and being given in marriage, and no one has even a thought that's, uh, that judgment was going to come upon them. But then sudden dr- destruction does come upon them, and it says very exp- explicitly in Scripture that every single person from every tribe, nation, and tongue will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for their lives. And Scripture says very explicitly that the only thing that will protect us on that day from the wrath of God is one thing, the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ's atoning blood and sacrifice for us all. If we simply believe in that blood, if we simply accept the truth about Jesus, on that day of judgment that we will all face in this room, in one day on God's calendar, we'll be prepared for that day and we'll have confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, moving on to the resurrection, which is key and connected to blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no resurrection. Jesus had to offer up his life in order for next for him to be raised from the dead. So the next Jewish holiday after Passover is, uh, is three days later. Can you think of what Jesus did three days after he offered himself on the cross? That's right. Do you think it's a coincidence that it fell on a Jewish holiday? Are you starting to get the theme here and recognize that everything in Scripture is significant and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it? There's endless treasures in this word. This should be a pursuit of all of us in our lives to seek out God to recognize Jesus Christ, and to grow in intimacy toward him. I was in Arkansas a couple years ago, staying at a farmer's house, because I was giving a message at a church there. And this farmer uh, shared a lot of farming analogies with me. And one of them is um, about first fruits, because this holiday is called the Feast of First Fruits. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. This farmer said, what it means to be when you see the first fruit of your crops is that when you see your fruit begin to bear, it means that the harvest has arrived. And this is what it means for us Christians that Jesus rose from the dead. When we speak of the harvest of God, we think of something in a distant future, a future reality, which is true. The final harvest does take place, but the harvest has already begun because Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead. Then there will come a time that every one of us will exit this body and receive our new one, one that won't perish, and one that will live on forever. And the reason why we will be able to have that is because Jesus went before us and became the first fruits from the dead. All right, so in Hebrews chapter 11, which is someone who is Jewish commenting on Genesis 22, what we just read, He sees the resurrection here. So we're going to talk about that now. It says, By faith, 
Abraham when he was tested, which is the same verb that was used in Genesis 22, verse 1. Very key word and an important one in Judaism. Why? Because it's linked to the number 10 in the Hebrew Bible. The Jewish people believe that Abraham was tested 10 times, and the 10th and final one was the slain of his firstborn in Genesis 22. There are also other 10s in Scripture. One is from uh, Exodus, where there were 10 plagues that fell on the Egyptians. And because God shows no partiality, God also brought 10 tests to the Israelites. It says in Numbers 14, God says concerning concerning his chosen people, have you tested me these 10 times? And again, because God shows no partiality, there certainly will be 10 tests for Christians as well. And I think this is important, and this is the reason why I'm bringing it up. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus' apostles say, when shall these things be? Referring to the time of his coming. And Jesus doesn't give a direct answer. He doesn't tell them when it will take place, but he gives them 10 signs of his appearing. So we have two ways in how we could respond when we see um, prophecy being fulfilled before our eyes. One is we can harden our hearts like the Egyptians did when God did signs among them and wonders among them. Or we could be people like Abraham who believed God every one of the tests, even to the point of the slain of his firstborn son. And that, is, that should be the path of the Christian. So just one last thing before we go over that verse is um, just like there's 10 plagues and 10 tests of the Israelites and 10 tests of Christians, there are also 10 famines. And these famines are very significant and it kind of hinges upon what we're about to get to here. Nine of them have been fulfilled in the Old Testament already, but there's one that is in prophecy that speaks to our day and age in the last days. And this is what it says in Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, referring to the last days, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the earth, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the day and age that we live in, a time where scripture is solemnly talked about on radio and TV, a time where God's word is taken out of our schools. And even a time, and I reluctantly say this, but it is true, that my wife and I have been visiting lots of churches over the years, the word of God in our churches are suddenly preached these days. Indeed, there is a famine on the earth, and it's not a bread or water, but it's hearing God's word. So what do we do in response is the question that I'm building up to here. How do we live as Christians for God? which leads into the Holy Spirit. But let's finish here on the resurrection in um, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, his 10th time, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, which refers to the Holy Spirit, but we don't have time to get into that right now. He considered that God was able even to raise his son from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even before the New Testament was written, Jewish people actually believed that in Genesis 22, 
when God or when Abraham received his son back, that figuratively is re, in reference to the resurrection. So in Genesis 22, we have the blood of the lamb. We also have the resurrection because Abraham figuratively received his son back. And at the, toward the end of the chapter, it talks about the promise made to Abraham, which ultimately is fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. So let's now turn to the Holy Spirit. Um, after this holiday, the Feast of First Fruits, there's 50 days called Counting the Omer. And 50 is significant because the next Jewish holiday is 50. That's what it's called. In Hebrew, it's Shavuot, which means 50. And in Greek, it's Pentecost, which we should all be familiar with because that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. So again, not a coincidence that the next holiday is connected to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So what is the relationship between what the Jewish people celebrate on this holiday and Acts chapter 2 is what I seek to answer this evening. Well, there are three relationships. Um, What the Jewish people commemorate on this holiday is the receiving of the law in Mount Sinai. So there's three connections to Mount Sinai in Acts chapter 2. First is it's the giving of the word on Mount Sinai. And very key because in Acts chapter 2, it's the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament authors oftentimes use those two words synonymously, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They're very much connected. Another connection is God comes down in a very powerful way in both experiences. On Mount Sinai, he comes down in fire. In Acts chapter 2, he comes down in tongues of fire in the form of the Holy Spirit. But there's an important contrast as well. Moses had the tablets of stone in his hands. He begins to proceed to walk down off the mountain, sees the golden calf being built at the base, and he throws down the tablets. We all know the story. He runs down off the mountain. He beats the golden calf into powder, makes everyone drink it, and then the Levites raise up and slay 3,000 men. Now fast forward to Acts chapter 2. On the same day but different year, how many men were saved? 3,000, that's right. So there's definite contrast there, isn't there? And it just shows you how deep Scripture is and how significant every word that appears there. So about the Holy Spirit and how we apply the Holy Spirit to our lives today, we'll start with Joel chapter 2. This is what Peter used to preach about in Acts chapter 2. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Two things is that when the Holy Spirit came and initiated the last days, and two is that the spirit was poured out on all flesh, which was very significant because at that time, a very small percentage of the world received the Holy Spirit, only prophets, kings, and priests. But in this case, this incredible promise, it would be given to everyone. It says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, And your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, here's something you might not have heard. If you read Joel chapter 2, the context of the giving of the Holy Spirit, Joel brings up a very important concept of the harvest. And what he brings up is that the early rains and latter rains. So how's that connected to the Holy Spirit? Because he makes a direct connection. Well, I think it's a very significant one, actually, because the early rains served a purpose of breaking up the fallow ground, the ground that was hard, in order for the farmers to plant seeds in the ground so they can produce a crop. That is in reference to the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. 
where hard hearts were broken, softened, and the seeds of the word of God and the Holy Spirit were planted in their hearts, which happens to everyone who hears the word and believes in it. But then there's a latter rain, which I think is significant and speaks to our day and age. This latter rain served a different purpose than the first. It was used to mature the crop that was already grown, allow it to produce fruit, and prepare it for the sickle of the farmer. Now, this is the latter rain that I think is the giving of the Holy Spirit in the end of days, to mature the crop and prepare it for the final harvest. So this, I think, and hope for, that will happen someday in our near future. So what do we do until that time is the question that I ask. Ephesians chapter 1, I think, answers this question quite well. Um, by the way, this comes from the longest scripture or the longest sentence in the whole Bible. It's 11 verses long. And this is the last few words of that sentence. It's building up to what is being said in these two verses. It says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So if you heard the word and believed, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Key word, seal. An ancient historian said, There are two things that every person had in biblical times. One is a walking stick, and the other is a seal. It's a little thing that has an imprint that's unique to you, and you would use it to secure a document. You wrote something in a document, some legal form. You would melt wax and seal it with your impression on it, and it meant that you guaranteed the contents in that document. That's why it says in the next uh, line, it says, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when we heard the truth or the promise, promises just like they were given to Abraham, and we believed in them just as Abraham did, we received the promised Holy Spirit, and which is our confidence, our guarantee that on the day of judgment, we will be able to stand before the Lord uh, completely vindicated. So what is the takeaway of all this? And I'm going to conclude with this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, um, if you guys can turn your Bibles there because it won't be on your screen, is about the giving of the Holy Spirit and what we do with the Holy Spirit in our lives today. I believe in chapter 5, this is a message that Paul would want to share with us all in the day and age that we live in. Starting in verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is what God's will is in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, there's two questions that come to my mind when I read this. One is, it says, go and be filled. So how do we be filled with the Spirit? What does that look like for the Christian? And secondly, what is the indication that we are filled? What does it look like for the Christian life if you are filled with the Spirit? Paul answers both of those questions and give us insight on what it means and what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. First, let's answer the question of what it looks like to be filled with the with the Spirit. It says in verse 19, one that's filled with the Spirit will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In verse 20, one who's filled with the Spirit will give thanks always and for everything. 
Someone who's filled with the Spirit in verse 21 will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives will submit to their husbands. Husbands will love their wives. Even in 6.1, it says children will obey their parents in the Lord. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. So how do we be filled? Because Paul says directly, go and be filled with the Spirit. Well, Paul gives an answer to that if we compare Ephesians to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians was written right around the same time that he wrote the letter to the Ephesian church. And so he taught very similar things in both books, but he used different language, which will help shed light in what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. And I'm going to end with this. In Colossians 3.16, it says, this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Next slide. Wives will submit to their husbands. Husbands will love their wives. Children will obey their parents and everything. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's what we read, not verbatim word for word, but in Ephesians, that's what we read. But it doesn't say go and be filled right before all these words. It says something different which sheds light and what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Let's give it a read. You ready? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's to take these words that every single one of us has available to us, free without cost, and become so intimate with it that it's something that dwells in our hearts, something that we think upon, something that we live upon and act upon, something that we share with our neighbor. And this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. While the current of the world is wordlessness, there's a famine on this earth of the Word of God, We have a choice, every one of us as Christians, either to go along that current and be a wordless people and distracted by the things of this world, or to seek the word of God and be filled with the spirit of God. So just as as Paul said to um, his brothers and sisters in Ephesus and and Colossae, so I say to you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with the spirit of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, the one who is the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, who willfully gave up his life, saving us from our sins, clearing us from your wrath, and setting us free. Lord, we are forever grateful for the sacrifice you made for us. And Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in your resurrection, showing that you have conquered death because of your righteousness. And Lord, we long for that day that every one of us who have heard your word, have received your promises, and have believed in you, will also be raised to new life. Until that time, Lord, just as you promised, you said, I'm going away for a short time. But when I go, I will send my spirit who will be with you and in you forever. Lord, you've sealed us with your Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, who is our hope that we will see you face to face one day. 
And Lord, I just pray that as this world becomes darker and darker, that we would fill our hearts with your light, your truth, so that we can come to know you in an intimate way and so that we can be a light in this dark world. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Before I say a blessing over you, I just want to share this really quickly. When my wife and I lived in Jerusalem, I walked by a cave and um, uh, I wondered what was in that cave. And sometime later, I found out that that cave was something very significant. It was an archaeological dig and uh, these archaeologists found a little scroll. And the scroll was just a little silver thing that they saw that was very significant. And so when they began to unroll it, it took them three years to unroll it because they saw that it was so delicate and so old. It contained a passage of scripture, a blessing. And it's the oldest piece of scripture ever found in archaeology. And this is a blessing I want to leave you with tonight that we should all be familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Amen.